This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Um, I'm Christina Venegas, and i um, very happy to welcome Mark Schaefer to the Pollock Theater. Um, and I just want to begin by saying that there's so much to say about... Eduardo Santiago Moybridge. <laughs> I mean, it's so incredible, and I, I love um, sort of boiling it down to stories and sex. <laughs> um, or, as we were just saying, there's so much, so much in this film. Um, you could talk endlessly about a variety of topics that are very, very, very interesting. Um, and I also just want to say briefly that the film's composer uh, made the trip all the way up, um, Chad Cannon, and he's sitting right over there. <laughs> Beautiful music. Thank you. Um, and, okay, so I guess we could just kind of start at the beginning because there's so much to say, and I'm sure we'll run out of time, but there's so much... I mean, you can see from the story that, that there's so much about this particular um, moment of history, about this particular person. There's, but there's also lots that's been written about him. Yeah. Um, there's plays. There's other movies. I mean, there's, all, there's so much stuff. Yeah. So you're insane, basically, <laughs> to take this on. But how did you take this on? I mean, how do you finally decide? And what is the thing that draws you in um, to decide on telling the story this way? Well, I, I got started because I was making another movie and I needed images of San Francisco from the 19th century and I had an archivist who was bringing me photographs of early San Francisco and Mybridge was one of the main photographers of San Francisco and so I was, a lot of them were by him. I had no idea who he was, but I, I liked certain images, especially these ones with figures that were looking away to horizons. I found them very magnetic, like I would be drawn to them. And I just really loved them. They, were very, they had a kind of mystery about them. Man, they just felt that, that, that kind of history, mystery thing going on. So I just got curious, and I, I punched the name, which I didn't recognize into Google, and saw all uh, suddenly that this guy was a really big deal. And so then I'm like, well, why didn't I know who he was if he's such a big deal, number one? And... And I also recognize all those running horses and things. I kind of know that stuff. I didn't really, I mean, I don't know where, but I, it's just like in the subconscious. I know this stuff. And I saw there was a bunch of books written about him and tons of articles. And I picked up one of the books, uh, Rebecca Solnit's book on, on Mybridge. And I read that, and it was just such an amazing story. And I was blown away by it. And she's a great writer, and she writes in a way that appeals to me. She puts him in a kind of context historically. She kind of uses him as a way to reflect his time and all the factors of what's swirling around him at the time. Uh, and that just, I just thought this is great. And I also thought, why are there so many books about this guy? He's a photographer. You know, these books are terrible. They have these like grainy you know, pictures that are this big on lousy paper and, and you know, this cheap paper that you'd expect a paperback to be published in. 
And I'm thinking this is like a crime against uh, humanity or certainly against art and photography. And I thought he should be, his story should be told in a visual medium. And uh, there really wasn't a, a feature, there wasn't a feature length documentary. And there were only other couple of documentaries out there that weren't, I just felt there was room for this story to be told in this way. Um, and I was saying to Mark um, while we were waiting that I really love the use of the grid at the very beginning um, to set up his characters. And so you choose um, as an entry point, you know, these, um, at the very least 12, but maybe more characters yeah. who are really making this story lively. Yeah. Um, and so how does that whole, how, you know, how do you make that choice of which voices you're going to use yeah. to animate the story once you've decided um, you're, and, and obviously you're going to focus on the photographs, but many other things as well. Well, it's like you have to be a little uh, bipolar to pull this off. You know, it's like uh, you have to be crazy a little bit to try to make a documentary. You know, it's really hard to do. It's expensive. You have to raise all the money. Then you have to make these decisions. Then you have to second guess all your decisions. Then you have to get in the fetal position for a while and wonder, like, why am I such a terrible filmmaker? Like, why can't a good filmmaker do this movie? Maybe I could find one and I could tell them about it and heard about it and she would make it. Uh, give them my money. So you got to do all these like self-doubt stuff. But, you know, basically I had, I had a film that I wanted to uh, honor Mybridge. I wanted you to see his pictures. I wanted you to see his work. I wanted you to understand. Uh, and I wanted to approach the way I presented his work as much as I could uh, to sort of convey to you that he's a reality maker, not a reality collector. And so that meant I needed to go, in my mind, and shoot his actual photographs. I wanted you to see that they were objects uh, because we're just sort of lured into this idea that he just went out and he collected this reality. And I wanted to somehow pierce that veil a little bit. So I knew it was going to be a heavy photography film. There's going to be a lot of photographs on the screen. It, wasn't, it didn't lend itself to observational storytelling. There was nothing in the present tense to really shoot about him. I thought maybe I'd find like a Sotheby's uh, auction of his work and I'd start the film that way or something. There aren't. They're all virtual and stuff. Uh, and I would have been pretty forced to try to push my bridge into the present tense. So I knew I was going to be stuck in history. Uh, Unfortunately, he died in 1904, and so anybody who ever knew the guy was dead, long dead as well. So there's nobody who could speak in the first person. You'll notice in most history films uh, these days, which mostly they don't get made. They're not that popular uh, a genre. Um, but the ones that do get made that, get, that break out, you know, that like you know, Summer of Soul or something, they're all within the last 50 years because they want... Uh, witnesses. They want people to say, me, I. I was there, I saw this, da-da-da-da, blah-blah-blah. Tell you anecdotes, tell you stories. That was impossible in this case. So I knew I was going to have to find people who knew Mybridge uh, through their own research, not their own experience. I also didn't want to narrate the film, and so I knew I was going to need subjects who were so familiar with Mybridge that they could tell you his story without me telling you their, his, his story. 
and using them sort of like in between. Uh, and so that pushed me towards, you know, biographers, scholars, people who had spent a lot of time studying my bridge. And that's the bulk of the people in the film, but there's a lot of them out there. So then I had to sort of choose which were the right ones to include. And, uh, you know, the first consideration is, is uh, a certain kind of level of authority. Uh, the person had to be legit, you know. Uh, then I wanted people who were good communicators, who could talk, um, and had a, a, a colorful point of view, um, and some diversity. Some of them were good at some things, some of them were good at other things. They had an, most of them had an analysis. That was compelling to me. Um, I didn't want a cast of thousands. I didn't want you to have 100 people to get to know. Um, and I wanted the character, the, the, because these are sit-down, interview-driven film, I wanted the interview subjects to feel like human beings mm-hmm. instead of like uh, experts who had a inf- piece of information that you should know, would give you a plot point. And so we approached, I approached doing the interviews that way, uh, and we approached the edit that way. We, we looked for ways to uh, make the people have personality, or not really make them have personality, just let them have their personality. Because, you know, in this form, often uh, it's very efficient, and you cut everybody off really short, right? just, the, just the facts, ma'am. And you wouldn't put in... Uh, a little an aside that somebody says, or uh, Re- uh, Rebecca Gower's laughing about you know sexual satisfaction or something like that. Um, but those are the moments that bring the characters to life. They're the things that make the characters interesting, makes them characters. Period. Instead of experts. And so Gary Oldham is like Moybridge. I mean, he's so embodying. He's so yeah. enthralled by this character. Yeah. I mean, every time I watch this, he's more and more entertaining. <laughs> yeah, how many people liked Gary in this film, and how many people didn't like Gary in this film is the question. How, let me see a show of hands. Who liked Gary? Wow, pretty good. Did anybody not like Gary? Oh, we got one over here. We got two who didn't like Gary. Yeah, that, he, some people really find him a, kind of abrasive and like full of himself. Mm-hmm. And my wife kept saying to me, you got to cut some of those Gary bits out. There's too many of them. Because there's, believe me, there's more that, that didn't make the film. And, uh, but uh, I love him. And uh, I found, you know, he, he's an example of a guy, you know, I didn't just sort of obviously toss him in because he's a celebrity. Because who in God's name can tell that story without knowing it backwards and forwards? He wrote a script about, a screenplay about Mybridge that he was uh, trying to make into a movie, that he was going to direct and, and uh, have a role in, and, uh, and wasn't able to raise the money he wanted to raise to do that. So he really knows Mybridge backwards and forwards, obviously, because you can see he's, I didn't give him any information. I didn't tell him, this is what, what happened, Gary. Now you tell him it. Tell it to me good. Uh, he just knew all that stuff. Uh, but it was striking. I, I was so he, he was my last interview, and so I had interviewed all these other people. 
with the exception of Richard Jackson, the, the Clinkett chief, and maybe Luther Gerlach, the photographer, they are other, all the rest are professors. They all teach at a college somewhere. I guess maybe Rebecca doesn't. Anyway, they're all kind of academic types. Uh, so then I get to Gary. I plop down with Gary, and I interview him, and I, and I loved my other interview subjects. I loved them. Okay, I still do. But I finished with Gary, and I walked out. I was like, I called my editor, and I said, okay, throw out all the other interviews. We're just using Gary Oldman. <laughs> and, you know, what I realized by that experience was uh, Gary's, Gary's job is to be somebody, to inhabit their character. That's what he does for a living. Scholars' jobs are to understand people for, and, and interpret them and make sense out of them. So they were all doing that. All the scholars were doing that. They were telling me dutifully what happened, and they even told us what it meant. And Gary was just my bridge. He would unconsciously make references to himself. You know, being an artist is a very selfish thing. Gee, I think there's an artist in this room. At least one. You. <laughs> so I think I know of what you speak. Uh, or, you know, the Oscar. It was like the Oscar. You know, he just had a way of talking about my bridge that felt made him so real and tangible and human. Maybe it wasn't but it, true. But, but it, I mean, my, I would, what I would say is that he works because of all the other people. Like, if it was just him, so good call to not cut everybody else out. <laughs> right? Because it's that contrast, and you understand that that's what he's doing. You understand that that's what Gary Oldman is doing. And, I mean, he does it from the very beginning when you have that shot of him and of, of that picture of, of um, Moybridge inside the tree and he's interpreting and he's saying, look at his body. And, yeah. you know, and he says, that's gold dust. And um, so it's, you know, it, it, it works in that contrast. Um, but you're still dealing with a guy who's been dead for a long time. Yeah. And so fleshing out a film... Um, about that and all of the surrounding history, the importance of the inventions, the technology, um, the different controversies. How, does, how, do you, how do you wrap your head around that in terms of um, deciding where to go? And, and I was saying to him, I really like some of the solutions that you come up with to, to get at some of those things. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Okay, um, well, I just want to say one thing about that comment you made, because when people say things to me, it kind of like sparks insights that I don't, aren't necessarily like conscious, but obviously inform me. And I guess I've thought a little bit about this, but these interview subjects are a little bit like singers in a choir. They do complement each other, and there is a kind of musical quality to interviews, you know, in a film like this, and the way you lay them out. And we did want... This, uh, my producer, Serginio Rusblad, calls it campfire storytelling. Mm -hmm. uh, this sort of intimacy, lean in, tell us stories kind of feeling. We wanted that in the film. And uh, some of my favorite moments in the film have a, a feeling to them. They're not informational. You're getting plot, you're hearing stuff, but I like just the way they roll off the screen. So Gary says, you know, oh, right? And then you cut, and there's Rebecca, who's so different than Gary, kind of quietly saying, and then he left, and he told the guys, I'm going to Central America, you know? And just that kind of rhythmic 
mm-hmm. change mm-hmm. has a kind of like, uh, I can dance to that, you know? Um, and that's part of the art of filmmaking, you know? And then you, it's all these textures being put together in an effective way. Uh, to the other question about how do you get your arms around a story this big, if that's what I understood the question to be. Um, well, that's the good side of having so much work having been done on him is I could borrow a lot of, of that. Not borrow it exactly, but I certainly could be informed by all these things that have been written by all these smart people and kind of think about, oh, that's an interesting thing. Oh, that's really cool. Um, that's, I never thought of it that way. Uh, so first, I'm my own. I, it starts with me. Uh, that's my privilege as being the filmmaker. I get to choose. Um, what's important or not important. And then I try to do that as honestly as I can and in a way that is uh, defensible or at least transparent um, based on my values and my read of the people who I respect and and how they sort of put him in a certain context. But even after all of that, uh, there's too much. It would have been like a nine-hour film if I'd just given you all that stuff. You have to keep making choices. And uh, documentary filmmaking unless you're Ken Burns, is generally about what you leave. It's about like, you know, process of exclusion. <laughs> you have to leave something out. Uh, you know, most of us don't get 12 hours. Um, and nobody wants to sit through 12 hours for the most part. So uh, you have to make choices about where the story wants to go, what its, its rhythm is, what, what, um, what's working, you know, what, what's not working, what, how it speaks to itself. I was looking for a story arc. I was looking. Um, I wanted to take you on a, a journey uh, into our relationship with photography. And so I knew I had to find a way to introduce the basic idea, uh, create a foundation for you that photography is subjective I needed to somehow introduce that idea because it's not an idea most people think about at all, even me. Um, and that's when I, so I, I went through a lot of material trying to figure out how could I do that, and I decided that would be the Yosemite thing. I would use, uh, you know, Byron and Mark to do that for me because it's super subtle to try to figure out the difference between Carlton Watkins and Edward Mybridge which the experts are going to tell you is there. But you show a thousand people uh, Mybridge in a Watkins photograph, they, won't, they can't see any difference. Mm-hmm. It's really <laughs> subtle. <clears throat> so I, uh, thankfully, Mark and Byron had done that Lake Tenaya photograph, uh, which served the purpose to say, listen, you know, the, it, the world is an actual place, and they're putting a, a rectangle or a square around it. And that's a story of sorts. That's a point of view. Mm-hmm. And so once I did that, once I, I, I knew I wanted to start there, and then I knew I, I wanted to get into his motion stuff, I had, there was very little done on Alaska, and so that was sort of like, to me, an invitation to sort of explore it a little bit. Uh, and so then once I did that, I started getting more and more into it, and so it became interesting to me. That, so it made its way in. Um, I wanted... Uh, I wanted to hear from a native person about Mybridge, which you never, ever, ever see. Just doesn't exist. You can't find it. Good luck. 
in all those books? Not there. Uh, you get peop- you get white writers writing about Mybridge's treatment of Native Americans, sometimes in a respectful way or a way that it has empathy about that experience and what was going on at that time. But uh, I, I thought it would be a good idea to actually hear from them um, because I was trying to sort of put them in context, and I thought that would be mm-hmm. a great way to do that, you know, as to say he was observing a, t- a moment in time that the United States was taking these people's land, so let's go meet one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I didn't, you know, and, I, and it, took, it was not easy to get to Richard Jackson, but I did. Um, and then I said, well, let's go to your island. And I, I mean, that, this stuff sort of happens, and then you make mm-hmm. sense out of it. And I showed him the picture, and then he really loved the picture. I didn't think he, I didn't know he loved the picture so much. And, uh, and then he starts telling you, oh, it's his Atwu, it's his special thing, it's his chair. That's a, a, a word in the Tlingit people. Every clan has an Atwu, has a, a object, a cherished object that mm-hmm. is like their soul. And this is his Atwu, and it's like Mybridge's photograph. And here I'm trying to understand Mybridge, and I understand he has this legacy. And this is a kind of way he lives on. This is my uh, uh, way photographs have meaning. So anyway. Yeah, no, but I mean, in what that. you're saying, it's interesting because thinking back about that moment in the landscape, you know, when we're in Yosemite, and we're and they're talking about not just the photograph and where he stood, but what sep- what sets him apart, you yeah. know, the messiness of the photograph, and we begin to get into who is this multifaceted person, right? Which I think you. You know, that's then we continue to try to understand who this person is, and in addition to their context. And so, that early opening of having each person say one word about him kind of gets us in there, and then, you know, we're starting to hear about how he's inside the picture, inside the story, um, and what is that story he's telling us. Yeah, that's right. And that. that... So I wanted you to understand it was a biography, even if it was had some sort of interpretive aspects about big issues. It still was a biography at the end of the day about this guy. Um, and he's a colorful, enigmatic figure. And so the fact that everybody had a different take on him and couldn't quite come up with a, a way of thinking about him, I felt had a way of perhaps drawing you in and making you maybe curious about who this guy was. I did wonder and struggled a bit with the question of whether that device would work because people don't know who he is, Mm -hmm. right? It's not like it's a movie about Marlon Brando and you say, who's Marlon Brando? And they all say, well, maybe in this crowd, not folks don't know who Marlon Brando (laughs) is either. But if I were more hip, I would have like a common day reference, but I don't. Who's like a young star, like a... One of the Jonas Brothers? I don't know. Are they are they hip? I don't know. But uh, you know, the point is that no, nobody really knows who Mybridge is, and and so I was a little concerned that without kind of having some hook at the beginning to say, oh, Mybridge is a really big guy. He was an amazing guy. He's the biggest guy ever. Look at this stuff. He's he's a god. You should know his name. You know that. Well, who's this guy? What's the word thing? I don't know. I'm glad you thought it worked. Uh, well, I mean, I, I'm one of the people who knew who he was. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. So, uh, I, it, I, as, a, as a young film student in the 1970s. 
<laughs> I did come across a bit of information about his significance. Um, so, you know, so we get to that moment in this, in the film, um, you know, the famous, um, uh, photographing the horses. And I, I was thinking, wow, that's a, an amazing multi-camera shoot, <laughs> you know, uh, but it was just recreating, um, that moment, um, is, is pretty interesting in terms of understanding, you know, what all the different elements that went into, I mean, we read it in a textbook, right? Or, or at least I did. I read it in a textbook a long time ago. And so to have it sort of come alive is, is pretty interesting. Um, but it also stands out stylistically in the yeah. film. Yeah, and I don't know uh, if that worked for people or not, or for everybody's going to have a different reaction. But, uh, you know, it was a, 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 a bit of a stylistic hodgepodge. You know, we, we had photographs. Uh, we had sit-down interviews, um, a little bit of letter reading, and then there's this reenactment, you know, kind of reenactment thing, but we didn't want it to really feel like a reenactment so much. Um, and I was asked by somebody about this, like, why did you do that? Why, what made you want that to be a reenactment? And I started thinking, I couldn't remember why I wanted that to be a reenactment. I, I, I could, obviously, there was no real pictures of it and of, of the behind the scenes. There was no behind the scenes pictures other than those ones that are in there that he took that, you know, of him building his studio. And early on, I had this idea that, that, uh, that I that I should recreate that because I was trying to do this big meta thing where he influenced uh, the animators who came up with the bullet time animation for the Matrix movie, uh, which is a very is a very famous animation. Uh, that movie won the Academy Award for special effects, uh, and the animator, the main animator guy, told me that that Myerbridge influenced him. That 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 was where he got the idea. So then I, I had this idea that I would redo Mybridge's big moment in bullet time, which is not something a documentary filmmaker should do. Uh, but I, I had this idea I would do that, and, and uh, so that's what I did. And, and then to do that, I, I had to reenact it, and, and so I reenacted it, and then I had all that stuff, and then it kind of worked to tell certain parts of the story, so we did it that way. Um, but I was the whole thing was built around this idea of, of reproducing in a modern way using modern technology my mybridge's moment uh, but in his sort of legacy in a tip of that cap to his legacy and so what we did is we brought up from l a to the bay area a rig a special very special rig of uh, eighty four cameras that were uh, set up in a semicircle. Uh, against that wall that you see, and uh, had a horse run pass a bunch of times. The, by the way, the jockey is a woman wearing a, a, a mustache. Um, and, uh, and we would just keep, I thought we got run by, shoot, done. And it, that's, they, he kept missing it. No, he missed it. He, I was like, oh, my God. And then the horse was getting tired. And we got to die more. And this is costing me a lot of money to pull this thing off. Anyway, we finally get it. I'm very excited. We get it. I get the footage back. And uh, there's a bunch of cameras in the footage. Because it's a semicircle of cameras. 
And I hadn't really thought about the fact that all these cameras see all these cameras <laughs> and vice versa. <laughs> Oops. Ah. So, <laughs> you know, I don't have any money. And, I, and so I'm like, I, I, this is a, so much of this film happened this way. I was on like a Facebook chat board about five, my bridge, you know, and I was like, I don't know, some guy had sent me a, a posted a thing on the chat board of his animation. He's Peruvian. This animation thing he did of my bridge stuff. Big Amit, my bridge guy. And I was like, wow, that's really good. Maybe you could do some work for me. <laughs> And he said, yeah, I could do that. And I'm like, oh, that's great. Um, can you remove cameras from behind stuff? It, you know, can you do that? You know, he said, oh, I know. How, yeah, I could do that. So anyway, he spent a lot of time frame by frame painting out all those cameras. Very so, funny. There you go. That's very funny. Um, <laughs> the, um, there's, I mean, he's also very influential, sort of mid-20th century to experimental filmmakers, yeah. painters, musicians, composers. Um, what is, you know, what is, how is, how is he received now? Well, what do you see him, how do you see that legacy? What is the context he's being into, introduced to, re-enlivened into now? Well, there's a, a critic writer person who says every generation uh, adopts Mybridge in their, its own way. Um, there, I don't know what makes him special that way, but he is. Um, he speaks to innovators. Uh, he, I think, is bigger after death than before in terms of his impact. Um, and I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I, I, uh, Francis Bacon said that uh, Michelangelo and Michael and, and, and Edward Mybridge are his two biggest influences. Um, there's a new trailer uh, for the uh, Jordan Peele film, Nope, and it starts with a Mybridge sequence. You know, what? what? Um, there's a... Nobel Prize winning chemist from Caltech. Uh, he's no longer with us, but he won the Nobel Prize, a femtochemist. Uh, who, uh, that's, femtochemistry is the study of molecular motion. And they have, it's like these super things like Slack at Stanford, um, these giant chambers that are a gazillion dollars to build. And they fire molecules around and they somehow see them with lasers mm -hmm. and things. And he thinks of Edward, he says, and in his speeches, he says, Edward Mybridge is my forebear. Mm -hmm. You know, my lasers are his cameras, my molecules are his horses. Uh, hmm. So he's, it, there was a guy, it's in the credits you saw, the Shipley thing. You know, this is, uh, oh, what's that stuff called? CRISPR. Mm -hmm. The new technology where they can, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. jab stuff inside cells. Um, and this Harvard guy was trying, has, was, had this theory, uh, this study he was doing, where he sees human cells, it's all very science fiction-y, as the next generation of uh, like data storage. Like mm -hmm. right now we have mm -hmm. servers, mm -hmm. these mechanical things, but he thinks living cells can replace right. those. Right. Right. And uh, he needed to show a proof of concept that that could happen. So he needed something that he could put in a cell and then get back out of the cell. And he chose Mybridge's horses. 
You know, I mean, that's what I mean. So I, 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 it's, he, I like to say, you know, once you start looking, you start bumping into Mybridge everywhere, and he's like peeking out impishly from the shadows of our culture. He's just hiding back there, like influencing the way our culture keeps reinventing itself. And, and you know, it's also really interesting, just from a historical point of view, that he is at this moment where, I mean, I think at one moment in the film he says he's selling the West, right, in, in his pictures um, and the, you know, the different um, commissions that he was hired on. And so he, he, he's, you know, he's functioning in all of these um, sometimes contradictory ways, um, the, um, the images with the grids where, you know, sort of other people are picking the subject matter. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it kind of opens, it seems like it, there's a possibility to think about, you know, the place of, um, of Moybridge in history in all of these different dimensions beyond, you know, what I learned about, which was the invention of, you know, the, the moving pictures um, and the horse uh, locomotion series. So... Um, but yeah, it's just sort of like from a historical perspective, it really seems to open up all kinds of interesting questions of how to do history, for one thing. Um, we talk about doing history a lot here. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to do history. But, but you're doing, but I mean, <laughs> this is what, you know, you're bringing together all these different um, ways of thinking about a person and the invention that moment of transition in science and art, um, the connection between the two, the, the, you know, the significance of, well, what, the, you know, what some of the people are saying in terms of the representation of um, race representation, gender, et cetera. Well, I, I really wanted, I felt very strongly, well, how would I put this? Um, you know, my own, my own development, my own evolution in, in the film uh, over, it took a long time to put together because of the fundraising. And so it gave me the advantage of steeping in the material for a long time and co- continually talking to more and more poor people. And at one point, somebody, I think it might have been Marta, or somewhere I came along this idea that Mybridge was manipulating his photographs in a way that even the scholars didn't understand who studied him. And uh, that like just rang a bell in my head. Because we live in a moment now where we're very sensitive to that stuff. And I come out of a news tradition. So I started in broadcast news. And then I, before I did this kind of stuff, I mostly or completely did kind of current events news documentaries. The kinds of things you guys watch to learn about the world. And I was very uncomfortably aware of the fact that by my nature, I was creating fictions that were factual. That's the art, that, that's the na- you, there's no such thing as a true story. Okay, they, they, they don't exist in nature. And so by, and yet, it's fraught because I can see the difference between, I, I respect certain storytellers and I don't respect others because I feel that they manipulate, some are trustworthy and some aren't in their, their storytelling. So when I saw Myridge started to touch on that, and I realized that this, uh, this tension in the machine-made image and this concept of truth 
uh, and the filter of the, the person behind the camera goes to the beginning of, of, the, of the technology, that, that spoke to me. That's my mm-hmm. privilege. Mm-hmm. That, made, that was something I wanted to talk about. Very few academics spend much time on this in their books. Enough that I'd seen it, uh, but uh, it's not a big thing for them. But for me, coming out of news and really concerned about today's world and the power of image and the manipulation of imagery to create explicitly false, intentionally false narratives uh, in order to influence us to see the world a particular way, to benefit the people who are trying to manipulate the way we see the world. Uh, that was something I really felt strongly about, and I built the whole back end of the film about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, just so you feel at ease, we are dealing with those topics. <laughs> are you solving the problem? No. Nobody's solving the problem. I just want to ask you about one other, not exactly documentary, but documentary experimental film about Edward Mybridge, and that is Tom Anderson's Edward Mybridge Zopraxographer. Mm-hmm. Now, seeing your film, I'm a, I've always loved that film. Mm-hmm. Seeing your film, you make a much, I, I have to say it this way, a much more complex argument uh, mm-hmm. than Tom Anderson does in that film. Uh, because in that film, Tom Anderson says, eh, you know, Mybridge wasn't interested in scientific analysis. He was just so happy to find an excuse to be able to create nudes, you know, Mm -hmm. as his contemporary Thomas Aikens was forbidden to do by the Philadelphia Mm -hmm. art establishment. So anyway, uh, but in your film, I got a sense that it was a little more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. You know, the scientific analysis wasn't just an excuse to be able to do the artistic work, but that it was a, a much more complex blend so I would just love to hear anything you might have to say about how your take on that developed in the film. So well, thank you. Uh, Tom Anderson's movie is, uh, was done in 1974. It was like really the only movie done on my bridge. He was, I think, a graduate student mm-hmm. when he made the film. Uh, so hats off to him uh, for having sort of plowed that field. Uh, I think uh, Dean Stockwell is the narrator, uh, you know, an mm-hmm. actor for the young crowd here who died recently, I think. Um, but, uh, and it's a very good movie. He's like the first person to animate My Bridge, to mm-hmm. take his photographs and make them move and actually move, other than My Bridge and his, like, sopaxoscope in a modern way. Uh, and it's a very well-regarded film, especially among film scholars. And uh, I was aware of it, and I thought when I made the movie, that's one of the things I found, and I asked myself, well, do I need to make a movie? And I thought, well, 1974, uh, it's really not a modern style film, and it's so different than mine. It's like an essay uh, all the way through with pictures. Um, You know, Mybridge's motion stuff, what drew me to it, try to understand it more deeply, and it's a little glib to say, oh, he just wanted, like Martha says, he's just interested in the water and the naked naked ladies. because there's a lot of that, that's true, but there's a whole lot of naked men. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think one of the things that happened with Mybridge and, and his pen work is the people who deconstructed him critically in academia were feminist scholars. 
And they really focused on his treatment of women and, and the erotic nature of the women and so on and so forth. And when I saw the pictures, I thought, boy, this looks like you know, tw- 21st century male pornography to me. Uh, the men are just as eroticized as the women. And, uh, and you know, there's some questions about Myerbridge's sexuality. Uh, nothing really explicit, but he had one marriage for two years in his 40s and spent a lot of time in the woods with other men taking photographs. I mean, uh, he, he really loved his body. He loved being a ma- He called himself the athlete. Um, the, the, he was a quirky dude that way. So... Uh, it was more complicated than that. Um, what drew me to the pen thing in this bigger picture idea of truth mm-hmm. and, and this notion that um, there's some like concrete truth that we can find uh, and define and put in a box, uh, I was really seduced by the fact that he went off and made these photographs that were like the first scientific photographs ever made to serve science, explicitly to be scientific. Uh, so, and they were being made for Penn, this elite institution, with experts in it, okay? And the experts had totally corrupted views of humanity, which infected his photography. So here you had this big scientific study that he's being used for at this austere institution where the experts work that we should all believe. And it's all because it's a reflection of the flaws of the society, right? All that power, all that authority derived from a corrupted society. And I loved, loved that because I felt it was the perfect sort of, I couldn't have invented a better Situation, unless it was maybe Harvard instead of Penn, but uh, to to sort of see the the corrupted truth. I mean, the fact that some of these guys in the on his committee belonged to an organization that sort of preceded eugenics, you know, uh, and and they're so arrogant, you know. I mean, I went to UC Santa Cruz, so I learned to hate you know people who went to Ivy League colleges, but uh, they were so arrogant that they donated their brains to this institution at Penn to study why they're so smart after they died. You know, so anyway, that, that, that's a long-winded way to answer your question, sorry. With this film, it relies heavily on the archives, seeing his photographs, and just seeing in the credits, you're pulling from a lot of different archives and museums. So I just wanted to hear a little bit more about what that process was like, and also just aesthetically uh, figuring out how to present these images um, fitting the documentary format. So, yeah, so, you know, uh, most, well, first of all, he's a photographer, so he made, uh, he's not like a painter, so there's more than one version of what he did in original form, uh, scattered all over the place. So it's a big, just a big job to figure out where everything lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are many, many collections and most of them are set up to help a, photo- a filmmaker. If you come along and knock on their door, they like, have ways to get the stuff to you. Many of these collections have actually been digitized and exist online now, and you can just download them, like the Getty ha- has downloadable images. For us, one of the big challenges was 
twofold, that thing I mentioned before that I, I, I wanted as much as possible to avoid just slapping a picture on the screen, you know, Ken Burns style and meander around on it for a while, um, and to kind of somehow find a tangible object that I could show you. Um, and then also we needed, you know, many of the things you see in the film are, are, are this big on the, on the mm -hmm. photograph. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a 4K film, and so you need just a gi gigantic image. And those are not posted online, and they don't exist in the archives at all. And so, you know, I build relationships, and I got several archives, or three, to rephotograph their collections, bring in photographers and, and you know, photograph just massive images for me. Um, so that had to happen. Gary has a collection, Gary Oldman. He let me come down and photograph it. So the, some of the cards you saw that you mm -hmm. could really see that it was an object, those were done at Gary's house. Um, the pandemic hit. I had more relationships set up to shoot more like that, and the pandemic came along and made that um, mostly impossible. Um, so that's, that's how I did it. Um, there, he has uh, thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of photographs. And there may be, I don't know how many are in the film, honestly, 500. Uh, so curating was hard. Uh, we created a system to get into the weeds a little bit, you know, using this software called MyLeo that's like for home photographers to make libraries out of. And we adopted it and sort of trans, uh, made it work as a, a library archive so we could see my editor was in North Carolina and I was here in, in the Bay Area and so we needed a way to share that archive mm -hmm. and talk about the pictures a little bit and which pictures worked and we kept swapping pictures out right up until the end. Uh, in terms of how we use the pictures, um, well, we chose the ones we felt best represented what we were trying to convey to you. Uh, what we were trying to say to you about what we thought. Um, there's, we showed some that were interesting, like those uh, bluish-looking ones. They had a very bad moray on this cut. That doesn't usually happen, but uh, those are cyanotypes. That was an early form of a, like a proof sheet. There's only one set of those that we know of in existence. It was discovered in the basement of, of the Smithsonian in 1984, and they, they're one of the groups who re-photographed their stuff for me, so they went in and re-photographed those for me. Um, I would have liked to have used even more of those kinds, to have more of that tangible quality, like I had wanted to shoot some of the motion sequences that way, but the pandemic and, uh, and cost of doing that sort of got in the way. Um, but that's mostly how it is. And then there was some discussion about pacing how quickly, that was a big piece of it, you know. I mean, if you go to a museum exhibition, uh, you have your own autonomy. You decide how long to sit there and stare at an object and what to look at in that object. As a filmmaker, you have to uh, curate that experience. I determine what you look at. And every, how many people go to a museum and look at exactly the same part of the photograph for exactly the same amount of time, okay? Nobody. So that, that's a different experience. I was aware of that. I wanted you to... So we let pictures hang on the screen a little longer. We tried to stay wide more than give you 
details to give you a chance to maybe make some of those choices. But at the end of the day, we were aware, I was aware, that you, I couldn't replicate the experience of a museum. I couldn't give you that, that independence. You create a wonderful arc where you kind of end with him about to end into obscurity, and yet he really doesn't, right? He becomes famous, or now modern-day famous-ish. Why did you choose to not try to answer the question of why, or why did you leave that question open? Why he's become such a, a big figure after his death, why his legacy is so Yeah, big. exactly. Um, well, uh, boy, I love that legacy thing. I, it was a real struggle to think about whether I... I struggled with whether I should make what you saw mm-hmm. or whether I should go like hang out with modern artists who love Edward Mybridge somehow and like make it really about this really immediate intimate thing with his legacy somehow. Uh, and I, yeah, I ended up with this and, and, but I couldn't let go of, of the legacy thing at all. And I did, I didn't get great interviews about the legacy and I would have had to keep interviewing people and I didn't have them in the pandemic. And then I still tried to do a big epilogue at the end where I had more than you saw with interviews and people talking about him and stuff. And I thought about getting uh, whatever the guy's name is who did the Naked Tea Party. I always forget his name, David DeHockney. Um, Try to get him. I reached out to him. And then, you know, my editor said, oh, I think we should just do this little quick thing and it'll be great. And I was like, I threw the white, I put the white flag up. I said, yeah, I think that's right. Well, she did sort of cut it. And I said, yeah, that's pretty good. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> Any questions? Do we, are we out of time? Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for your good questions. Thank you, Mark, for a beautiful film. Thank, thank you, you for coming. Thank you for having me. And- been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.